0: So uh, good evening, uh, conference goers and history lovers. Welcome to the latest uh, History Island Head School. I'm your head school master, Tommy Graham, uh, editor of History Ireland magazine. And I, I know with approval, everyone has purchased a copy there. I uh, think there's, there's a few left. Um, now, uh, it's a great pleasure to be here my, my favorite uh, venue, uh, because there's a bar at the end. Uh, the only disadvantage is you do get the people to hang around at the bar. So step up to the front row pews here. Um, now, this, uh, uh, we're delighted, of course, to be doing this head school in association with the conference, uh, which is sponsored by the I- ICTU and the Irish Centre for the Histories of Labour and Class here at uh, NUI Galway. We'd also like to acknowledge the support of the Commemorations Unit of the Department uh, of Culture, Heritage and the Grailtaught. Now, our topic here tonight is Labour, the North and the National Question. Uh, James Connolly, executed for his part in the 1916 Rising, famously asserted that, quote, the cause of labour is the cause of Ireland. The cause of Ireland is the cause of labour. But how did this pan out in practice, particularly in relation to the northeast, where most of Ireland's industrial proletariat were concentrated? And to discuss these and related matters, uh, I'm joined by uh, Emmett O'Connor, uh, Brian Hanley and Margaret Ward. Now, in terms of the format, uh, you are at school here, guys. You have to sit up straight, pay attention. Uh, don't drink too much. Uh, do participate in the discussion. Uh, we won't just have a Q&A at the end. Uh, it's open to anyone the, uh, 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 from the audience. If you just put your hand up, if you want to ask a question, if you want to disagree violently with something uh, our panellists say, don't keep it to yourself. Uh, this is a, a, an open uh, forum. Now, I'd like to start maybe just by by interrogating the the type of this a little bit. Emmet, Irish Trade Union Congress was founded in 1894. The ITGW was founded in 1908. And the Labour Party was founded in 1912. So, can we talk about an Irish Labour movement before these dates? I mean, these are uh, uh, explicitly Irish uh, organisations. What was there before that?
1: Well, in in the 19th century, uh, you had... You had a number of Irish unions which tended to be local, based on local trades. And they were generally in decline because the Irish economy was was in decline. uh, And they would have been confined mainly to craftsmen. And then you had a growth from the sort of second half of the 19th century, from about the 1850s onwards, you had a growth of the the amalgamated unions, they were called the sort of bigger, better organized British trade unions. And again, confined to, to craftsmen. So uh, it was only really, I think, within the building trades that there was kind of significant resistance by the Irish to, to what was really a kind of British takeover. You know, the, the, British, the big British unions coming in, it was kind of like Sainsbury's or Tesco's moving in, taking over the corner shop or kind of draining it out of business. They kind of absorbed uh, lo, lo, local uh, unions. And from about the 1860s, you had... Um, you had some consciousness of a labour movement and a desire to develop an Irish labour movement. From 1868, the Irish labour movement was in theory represented as part of the British TUC, but in practice there was very little involvement with the British TUC. So the question of forming some kind of Irish trade union congress re- remained very much uh, on, on the agenda.
0: Can I ask about the, the, the position of the, the original IRB, right? Because were, they, they were... Uh, either members or associates of the, the first international, what was their attitude to labor? Yeah, the,
1: um, the, yeah, the, the well, the, in, uh, after the, the failure of the, the rising in 67, as, as in the case with a lot of um, you know, nationalist risings, if, if the, the risings fail or if they kind of fail to develop a response to the middle class, they then kind of turn to, to the working class. And uh, so the, what was left of the Finian movement starts to become more radical after 1867. And they looked to the International Working Men's Association, the first international. Of course, they didn't call it the first international, to, uh, you know, as, as potential allies. And you had a lot of strike activity in Cork in 1869, 1870. So they were, they were kind of looking to, to the international for, for help with that. And the international was discussing this question of whether they shouldn't get involved with national movements and, and whether they should develop some kind of specifically Irish dimension. And Marx and Engels were very much in favor of that, whereas you had others in the international saying, no, socialism should be purely international, and we shouldn't get involved w- with the national movement in any way. But briefly, the international did, did get involved with Ireland in 1869, 1870, but they, they operated, they were aware that they'd encounter some opposition because it was just after the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War and the, 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 church, the Catholic Church was in a violently anti-socialist mood because of the Paris Commune. And the, the International in Ireland operated under the name of the Hibernian Excelsior Labour League. And it was just as well that people weren't as obsessed with acronyms in those days as they are today because it would have confirmed clerical suspicions.
0: <laughs> Margaret, can I come to you? Because there is, there is um, uh, a developing uh, women's movement in Ireland at the, same the beginnings of it, at, at least... What was their attitude to to, to, to labour, to organised labour?
2: Um, well, if you're talking about the trade unions, you, you know you've got Mary Galway in the north with the Textile Operatives Society recruiting the the um, the, the the better paid. I presume there's a considerable
0: organizing. female workforce in the north, and because yeah. there is,
2: you know, the women in the textile industry, but nevertheless, the textile operatives. Even though there are thousands of women in the linen industry, doesn't recruit that many. It is really the the, the cream of the of, of the um, of the, the organisations that are there. But what you have then is by 1911 Connolly coming into Belfast and working with the dock workers and them then asking or the the wives and the sisters saying would you organize us as well so he sets up the Irish Textile Workers Union Um, and then there's that whole big um, debate between him and Mary Galway within the um, Belfast Trades Council you know she accuses him of poaching members and there's also um, the Irish Women Workers Union that is set up at the same time in Dublin but Larkin believed in separate trade unions for women, whereas Connolly believed in mixed unions and the one big union. So he starts off the, um, the textile workers' union and there is all that sort of mythology and, you know, the, 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 the linen workers' strike and, you know, they, they don't gain their demands when they're on short term. Time and they're speeded up, etc, and they 're losing money, so when they go back, but Connolly, as, a, as a, the organizer that he was, you know <coughs> refuses to see it as a defeat, you know go back and you know the, the rules. You know, if you infringe the rules, you got fined. He's saying, go back, sing, talk, don't allow the employers to intimidate you. So he tries to frame it as a victory. It's not a victory mm. in terms of um, economic outcomes, but it's it's gone down in, I suppose, mythology as, as to what happened in the Irish Textile Workers' Union. But from that, you do have, for a few years, up to the First World War, you have... Um, Marie Johnson. Then you have Winifred Carney, Ellen Gordon, uh, Gordon. Women who who become strong trade unionists and and and, and builds up a, a a substantial presence, but it you know it dies away after the war.
0: But the point is, there, they're, they're in there right from the start, from the ground floor in, in the developing labour movement.
2: They are, and in the south, you have, you know, the Irish Women Workers Union when, it, when it's formed. Delia Larkin is the first organizer, but you have Constance Markievicz and Hannah Shee Skeffington also speaking at its inaugural meeting. So it brings in nationalism and suffrage into that, and, and in the north as well, suffragists were very much uh, in favour of supporting women within the trade union movement.
0: Now, I just want to move away from the, the Labour movement here to, to the other concept in, in our title, which is the North. I mean, this is one of these things we all think we know what that means, Brian, but there was no North, geographically speaking. No, there was no partition in the late 19th century, early 20th century even. When did a concept of the North or Ulster as a different place, you know, with different conditions, when did that emerge? I can't say when
3: it exactly emerged, but I mean, in 1887, to begin with a good quote, Michael Cusack, you know, the founder of the JA, was up in Belfast trying to help establish uh, JA clubs, and, and he actually liked Belfast which was unlike quite a lot of nationalists who didn't like Belfast at all. And he said, you know, in truth, we at both ends of the great northern mainline know more about the real feelings and sympathies of the Chinese or the scattered remnants of the Red Indian race than we do of our fellow countrymen who reside just 101 miles distant. And there's a whole stream of that in the late 1800s, early 20th century, Writers like William Bullfin, Rambles and Aaron talks about Belfast is prim, it's austere, there's no geniality, there's no laughter that you see in other towns in Ireland. He really dislikes it. Uh, uh, Michael Collins, for example, also in the the Path to Freedom talks about, you know, the problem with the North is that it's become merely an inferior Lancashire. Who would visit Belfast or Lisburn or Lurgan to see the Irish people at home? This is the unhappy faith of the North East. It is neither English nor Irish. Now, in the case of Collins, that didn't mean he wasn't interested in the North, but he did see it as different. And he saw what some people in the North thought was their defining feature and what was great about it, the industry and so on, as something that maybe wasn't particularly Irish or was in some way aping British industry. And the North did look different. I mean, every visitor to Ireland who toured Ireland... Now, again, there's nothing unusual about that. It doesn't have to be a loaded... You know, Torquay is different to Tottenham. You know, they're, they're different parts of the same country. But when people came to Dublin or Limerick, or or especially if they went to Limerick or Cork or or Galway, they'd say, once you go to Derry, and particularly Belfast, you are faced with what we really recognise as a modern city. I mean, Derry wasn't in any ways... As, as significant as Belfast. But Derry had Tilly and Henderson's, for example, which is mentioned, a uh, short factory mentioned in Das Kapital by Marx as an example of the concentration of labour. And they bloody knocked it down about 15 years ago, this big, huge building in, in, in Derry. But then once you got to Belfast, the most important shipyards in Europe, if not the world, rope works, tobacco works, the linen mills and so on, this was on a different scaled industry in the rest of Ireland. And of course, you also then had the majority of Ireland's Protestant population concentrated in some of it. And that also made it different. There was always Catholics there as well. So the North itself, of course, is is quite a fluid concept because Mm. to Unionists in 1912, Ulster is Ulster, it's the nine counties. You've got the UVF and Cavan, Monaghan and Donegal as well. It ultimately becomes six. So when Unionists today talk about Ulster, they're talking about six counties. But one time they meant nine. You know, And also Nationalists, of course, were aware that parts of the North were very different but but there is a concept of it out there and in during the home rule crisis a unionist writer called WF Oneypenny writes a a little booklet called the two Irish nations and he says why is the Dubliner different to the Belfast man because they belong to two different races two different ethnicities two different peoples so it's not that they're Irish people divided over politics there's just they're just different nationalities so that idea is out there
0: you know Emma, can I bring you back in here because you were talking earlier about the advent of the amalgamated unions, right? the British-based unions. Now, obviously then their expansion in the North East would be less problematic than in the rest of the country. So yeah. was it not inevitable? Because I know you're of the view that the, that the, uh, the Labour movement moved from a, 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 a position of support for nationalism to neutrality. But wasn't this inevitable given the the, the, the fact that the bulk of the proletaries were in the Protestant Northeast.
1: Yeah, they they did develop you know with the industrialisation of Belfast and the growth of the the, the shipbuilding trades and of course you, you had a lot of migration of labour uh, to to Belfast, from, including from Catholic labour, of course. So, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, Catholic labour also, uh, you know, which facilitated the the growth of uh, the the amalgamated unions in in the north, but. Um, Throughout the 19th century, the amalgamated unions in the north, they're, they're very much concentrated in the metal trades. The, the, the linen trades, the, the textiles trades are harder to organise, so the, the unions there tend to be more local. But, um, of course, it's, it's not problem, problematic for you know, Protestant unionist workers to join British-based unions. It beca- it's a bit more problematic for Irish nationalist workers in the south to join them. But by the end of the 19th century... Um, you you do have this significant shift in the attitude of labour towards uh, the national question because, you know, you had the political active union in 1800, but you had what would now be called economic and monetary union by by 1825. So that was phased in over 25 years. And the the sort of complete um, economic union of Britain and Ireland after 1825 led to the decline of... uh, you know, Irish industry, which would have been less developed and more handicraft industry than the Britain. So, you know, whereas in other countries, the growth of the railways and the steamships led to industrialization. In Ireland, it had the opposite effect because it, it opened up the Irish market to manufactured Briti- British goods, and it led to the decline of Irish industry. So the nationals, they, the, the labour movement became convinced that Ireland needed... Uh, tariff protection to protect the Irish economy, and you couldn't get tariffs without self-government. So it was in favor of the, the, the leading national movement of the day. But by the 1880s, or certainly by the 1890s, there's such a degree of Anglicization that labor is in practice hegemonized by British labor. You know, we, we, we're all kind of familiar with the decline of the Irish language after the Great Famine. But it wasn't just in relation to the language. In relation to almost everything we did, from what we had for breakfast to how we entertained ourselves in the evening, we adopted the British way of doing things. And part and parcel of that was the Anglicization of labor thinking and the adoption of this British labor idea that labor and nationalism are dichotomous. They're in two separate boxes. They don't go together. This was the view of the British labor movement, because they looked on. Scottish and Welsh nationalism as a threat to the unity of the British working class. They saw English nationalism as too identified with imperialism and uh, you know, the, the Empire and the Tory party and so on. So their attitude was that Labour should steer clear of any kind of nationalism. And we kind of adopted that idea uh, in Ireland as well. Certainly by, by the 1890s, it was well-established within the Irish Labour
0: movement. Would that have not have been a common position t- throughout Europe at that time, amongst other Labour movements?
1: To, to some extent, I mean, you, you had this debate on the left um, you know, as to how socialists should relate to, to the, the, the national question. But I, I think um, you had this kind of odd situation in Ireland whereby, the official, officially, the labor movement subscribed to this idea that it should have nothing to do with, with the national question. But in practice, the vast majority of workers just didn't go along with that. You know, They were unionists or they were nationalists. Uh, so you, you had this kind of odd situation of a, of a sort of a, a patent contradiction between the official position and the actuality.
0: Right, just to move on to um, my, my introductory quote here uh, to James Connolly and his time in Belfast, because he would have faced precisely the, the type of contradictions you, you're talking about. Well, I wanted to just throw this to, to all three of you. Like, How significant was Connolly's time in Belfast? Because are we in danger of... of uh, projecting too much significance onto it retrospectively, given what happened, you know, that, that he, he uh, uh, was executed in 1916. Brian, how, how significant was his time in Belfast?
3: I mean, I think it was significant, but again, I, I think you're right. There's, there's also, uh, I mean, when we talk about Connolly in Belfast, you've got to go back a few years before and talk about Larkin in, in Belfast. I yeah. mean, you know, part of the, the foundation of a distinctively Irish trade union movement is partly the experience of Jim Larkin in the Belfast Dock Strike, his dissatisfaction with the performance of the British-based National Union of Dock Labourers, his then (coughs) belief that you needed a distinctively Irish trade union, which becomes the Transport and General Workers Union. And that's allied to a belief uh, which, again, retrospectively gets lost. I mean, Larkin is every bit as much a nationalist in this period, every bit as much a Republican, very much, you know, rhetorically. Yeah, in there, there, of there, there's a misconception on that. Yeah I mean in, in, in later years in later decades some of the Larkinites you know take a very anti-nationalist position but that's not his position back then. Hmm. So there's a, there's a period I suppose in Belfast in the early 1900s where unfortunately in terms of, of Irish labour history and the history of, of Belfast you can talk about false dawns. Every so often there's, there's a struggle or a strike which seems to be leading to the breakdown of a sectarian divide. And in the early 1900s, you're fracturing within Unionism. The Independent Orange Order, which is a separate organization from the the big one, shows signs of interest in the dissatisfaction of working class Protestants. And that's a whole other story about people like Sloan, Thomas Sloan, and Lindsay Crawford, who later becomes a Republican. Then you also have strikes in 1907 among dock laborers. Larkin does succeed for a period in uniting both Catholic and Protestant workers. The docks are divided. The deep sea dockers in Belfast, historically Catholic, the cross-channel ones, historically Protestant. That divide goes on for decades after that, you know, too. But also then it coincides with other things that happen in the city where you have this brief moment of it looks like intercommunal solidarity around class. So Connolly is aware of that, but he's also acutely aware of where he's active, you know, and, and he's mainly active among nationalist workers. And the point is, of course, that Belfast is maybe a quarter nationalist by this period catholics been migrating from the countryside the falls what becomes later called the lower falls or the pound lowny these districts a couple of others in the city are becoming the the, the main catholic districts and thousands of those catholics also work in the mills if they're women some of the men in unskilled labor carters and dockers and labor politics can't escape the fact that you know there's this political and religious tension in the city as well, which is sometimes expressed around, you know, uh, uh, competition for jobs or the, the fear of competition for jobs. So, you know, Connolly is there just after 1912. And in 1912, you have the first major workplace expulsions, where in the atmosphere of the debate about home rule, there's an incident in the countryside. It's another story people can ask about it, but where the Hibernians clash with a Sunday school outing from Belfast. Some of the kids on the Sunday school outing they're the children of shipyard workers, and you've got the first major attack on Catholics in the yards. But not, also, not the first. well, not the first since the eighteen eighties, but they, this is the first modern one, and that happens just before Connolly is, is, is or in. in so he's aware of all that, but the you know his Connolly's belief or work in Belfast, um, you know, it, he's in that key period of, of home rule, of an Irish Labour Party going to be established to sit in a home rule parliament but at the same time the reality of a lot of belfast working class are are violently anti home rule and they're expressing that opposition in attacks on on catholic workers
0: Margaret, you want to
3: come in? i think
2: that connolly is a, a model trade union organiser in terms of how he deals with trying to build up the women's union and You know, we've got great reminiscences from um, Ellen Gordon who he takes on. She was a a doffer in the trade union movement and he asks her to become a trade union organiser. Her family think this is fantastic. She'd no longer wear a shawl, she'd be wearing a hat and coat, but in fact her her salary is tiny because the union has very little money but she has, you know, increased social status. But she talks about how he tries to inculcate this... um, Irish cultural identity. Emmett's talking about, you know, the fact that people in Belfast would have had much more of a British sense, you know, so that the workers... I mean, Ellen talks about the fact that it would have been the, the British music hall that they would have seen in terms of entertainment, and he's trying to get them to do Irish dancing, etc. cetera, and um, she, he brings them to Conswater in East Belfast to hear Alice Milligan talking about um, things to do with Irish nationalism and pageants and all of that so he and he, and also he brings up Maud gone constance markovich people like that linking the nationalist movement key figures to working class women and he also encourages his daughters to not only they're, they're very involved then by 1914 and coming on, but also to be involved in the labour movement. So he links all of these together or tries very hard, even though he's got a very small organisation. And he encourages Ellen Gordon to be a public speaker. So one of the very few women in the, in, in the custom house steps in Belfast speaking out, out loud. You know, And, you know, if there had been, do you know, other if we could replicate Connolly in terms of trade union organising um, within the kind of general union, it, I think it could have transformed women's experience of trade unionism.
0: Emmett, Connolly famously uh, uh, castigated his opponent Walker as a, a water and gas socialist. Um, what's wrong with water and gas socialism?
1: <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, Walker was, was very much a kind of... Uh, he's the kind of guy who would have fitted in happily on the British, uh, on the backbenches of the British Labour Party, you know. He, he, uh, he, he, he wanted to be an MP. He really, really wanted to be an MP. And he was willing to compromise with sectarianism to, to, to get what he wanted. But I don't, I don't think it's fair to, to characterise Walker as sectarianism himself. He described himself in the censuses as an agnotheist, which I presume is some kind of agnostic. Protestant agnostic. S-
0: something
1: like that. I think, personally, he, he, he was a decent guy. But he, he made a huge mistake in the, the famous or infamous by-election 1905 when he did compromise with the Belfast Protestant Association, who were so sectarian that not even the Ulster Unionist Party would have anything to do with him. <laughs> But Walker was so desperate to get votes that he was willing to, to make a few gestures in their direction. Um, but yeah, I mean, Connolly said that he's actually glad that Walker lost that election, which I think is an indication of the way in which Connolly would put the national question before the social, the, you know, the socialist question. Because, I mean, from a purely Labour point of view, it would have been better for Walker to, to have won, the, you know, that, that election, even. Despite his compromises. You know?
0: well, speaking of contradictions, uh, we can't move on from this period without the, the Joe Devlin, right? Who's who simultaneously ancient yeah. order of, of Hibernians and effectively a, a, a Labour politician in Belfast. Yeah, if, yeah. If, if I mean,
3: Joe Devlin is, is tremendously important because, first of all, he's the originator of one of the, the great myths of the Irish Revolution, which is that De Valera said Labour must wait. Joe Devlin said that De Valera. De Valera's policies amounts to, in practice, Labour must wait. And Joe Devlin, of course, the, in the Home Rule Party, was a coalition, like most political movements, and it had, in Westminster, often sided with what was seen as the democracy, you know, the extension of Labour rights and so on. And there were MPs in the Home Rule Party who associated <coughs> with the Labour movement, particularly the skilled trades in Dublin and so on. So, again, retrospectively, we can see these as just the Catholic bourgeoisie or whatever, but it's, they were more complicated than that. And in Belfast, firstly, Devlin was phenomenally popular among the Catholic mill workers, the women who didn't have a vote, as it happens, but, um, um, but also among the Catholic working class, and was also seen as somebody who would do things for the Protestant workers, too. I mean, he was, he was a, a Labour populist in many ways, and very influential, but also then realised the importance of communal mobilisation of the power of, of the ancient orders, ancient order of Hibernians, which he really revitalised in the early 1900s as a, a fraternal movement of, it became for the entire Home Rule Party, but started off uh, in, in, in Belfast and so on with, with him. Um, and he, I mean, again, people will probably be aware of it, but people often aren't, that in 1918, he holds his seat. He beats De Valera on the falls. He beats Sinn Féin. That's one place outside of Waterford where, in a popular election, the Home Rule Party hold on. And Sinn Féin canvassers are physically attacked on the falls by... Devlin supporters, including female mill workers, you know, they talk about this. So he's a popular guy, and he's seen as being on the side of the workers, and he says Sinn Féin aren't. He says Sinn Féin are going to put your, uh, your, your, your hopes on the long finger, and so on. And he really sort of originates that idea that, that Sinn Féin are about labour waiting.
0: Now, regardless of but who just, actually just said to, labour... Sorry, to, sorry, Margaret. So
2: just to add to, to Devlin, I always had him down as a real bête noir because... Um, of his attitude towards the vote in the Irish Parliamentary (laughs) Party. But it's interesting that um, he and Hannah Shee Skeffington, after the whole issue of the franchise and the the, the formation of the Northern State, have happened. um, Because he's still working um, for the benefit of mill girls. He he sets up a a kind of respite home for them and he writes very nice letters. They have correspondence based on mutual respect in the 20s. He actually contacts the um, northern authorities to see whether she could cross the border to meet with them because she's a banned person. And so you know, people's allegiances change as as situations change. So somebody who was a, a leading suffragette You know, working closely with Joe Devlin later on is, you know, very different from what you'd have had um, prior to the First World War.
0: Now, Brian has mentioned the 1918 uh, general election. Uh, Now, regardless of who said it, Labour may have waited throughout most of Ireland, but they didn't wait in Belfast, Emmett. There were Labour candidates in 1918. Yeah, well... How how did they do?
1: Yeah, that that was a kind of separate party, (coughs) the... um... The, 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 the Labour Party in Belfast, which is really branches of the kind of British Labour Party, had more or less been driven into the ground during the Third Home Rule Crisis. But with the, the radicalism, the revival of radicalism throughout Europe during the war, uh, the Belfast Labour Party is re-established in 1918. They applied to join the British Labour Party. The British Labour Party says, sorry, there's no Irish Labour Party and you should join the Irish Labour Party. So they don't agree with that, but they... They are kind of operated as a separate entity. And uh, they were against um, Labour standing down from the 1918 election. So they put forward four of their own candidates. They, they get about 22% of the vote in the constituencies that they contested. Um, uh, many there, pro- th- yeah, there are many Protestant constituencies. Three of their four candidates are Home Rulers. They're, they're not very enthusiastic for Home Rule, but they, th- the crucial thing is they don't want partition almost none of the labor activists in the North want partition. And some, most of them, in fact, would prefer home rule to partition, uh, which, to my mind, suggests
0: that... A bit of the DUP at the moment, isn't
1: it? That, yeah, well, that, the, there, you know, there's you a sizable section of the Protestant working class in the North at the time that didn't want partition, and that tends to be completely forgotten about hmm. because they believed that partition would lead to an orange state. Now, we tend to think that Connolly was unique... In saying that partition is going to lead to a carnival of reaction and so on, but he was actually typical of the left in saying that they all believed that. That was why they were against partition. They recognised that, you know, the Protestant, most of the Protestant working class wanted partition, but the argument was that, there, you know, the, the, the union, Protestant working class unionism was uh, not legitimate because because it was sectarian and it would only lead to the creation of a sectarian state in the north.
0: Well, they were right, weren't they? Yeah, there were. Yeah. Just. Uh, <laughs> by the way, just Do keep. It, I just. Now, I just yeah. keep an eye on the time here, guys. Uh, <laughs> don't uh, don't hesitate to jump in here in the discussion if, if you wish. Uh, we we have a, a radio mic here. If you want to join the uh, the discussion. Now there were there were uh, local elections then in 1920 as well, right? And uh, there were a number of people elected. I'm, I'm looking here. Uh, uh, Sam Kyle. For example?
1: So who is he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Labour in... I mean, Labour throughout Ireland did remarkably well in the 1920 local elections. It was a kind of high point. You see, 1919, 1920 were, you know, in many countries in Europe, they're called the Vienna Rosso, the two red years. They really were the kind of high point of European radicalism, but also in Ireland. But in the north, um, the Belfast Labour movement did quite well, and um, out of the 60 candidates members of Belfast Corporation. Labour won 12 seats. And there was also an independent Labour loyalist elected as well. So they had 13 out of, out of the 60 seats. So uh, Sam Coyle and various others, uh, like James Baird and so on, and they were all home rulers.
0: Right. Now, his, his wife was an activist as well, uh, uh, Margaret, uh, Mary Kyle.
2: Well, there were a number of women... Um, who were active within the Labour movement, particularly later on when the Northern Ireland (coughs) Labour Party is formed. I think Emmett would be um, better versed in this than me. But when you have people like Margaret McCubrey, who'd come from the suffrage movement, who worked with the cooperative movement, who um, becomes a Labour councillor, not not in the 1920 elections, but by, I think, 1925 for the Dock Ward... There are a number of women, but I think it's very, very difficult. They're coming from different places, if you like. I mean, think of Winifred Carney in 1918 standing under a Workers' Republic um, platform, which is the only person in Sinn Féin who had that. She would have preferred to have stood for um, Labour if it had been the, the Irish Labour Party putting forward candidates at that time. And then you have, have women... She, but then she's, she becomes active... Uh, again within the republican movement you know and is uh, arrested in 1922 so the, during the war of independence I think it's very difficult for people who see themselves as republican to be active in electoral politics and I think it's only later I think maybe with the boundary commission and the, and the reality that the north is now you know a separate state you know that it's you know it's things are not going to change in, in the foreseeable future, that women start to think of the kind of social welfare issues. Mary Kyle, Margaret McCoubrey, and other women are very active on that.
0: Brian, just you, you were talking about false dawn's earlier, because it, these these um, electoral triumphs that we've referred to in the, in, uh, the local elections... The reality is that this was all swept aside by, you know, a, a vicious sectarian war, essentially, that breaks out in Belfast between 1920 mm-hmm. and 1922, including another one of these uh, workplace uh, expulsions. Uh, just talk to us about that. I, 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 I'm particularly interested in the, the concept, you know, of the, the the rotten prod.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, the Unionist elite and the Unionist party were, were acutely aware that they depended on a cross-class alliance, essentially, that, you know, they... A lot of the grandees of the UVF and the the unionist movement in Ulster were landowners or were distillers or major businessmen. Um, But they also depended on middle-class support and also then working-class support. And they depended on the support of, of men and women who in other circumstances might be attracted to Labour politics and were attracted to forms of it. So in the 1918 election, wherever the Labour Representation Committee stood, if it was a unionist area like the Shankill, I think they got about 3,000 votes on the Shankill, but the unionists stood as a unionist labour, candidate. they rebranded as labour in order to say that we represent labour interests as well. So just as Devlin was aware that nationalists had to, you know, the unionists also had to to, uh, be aware of labour interests. But they're also very aware of the power of sectarian mobilisation in order to weaken labour. In January 1919, you had the engineering strike in Belfast, a huge movement which is linked to the movement for the 44 hour week in in, in Britain and Red Clydeside and so on is happening at the same time. Now, the majority of workers who take part in that, I think are Protestant, but there is some Catholic involvement and there is obviously socialist involvement. The unionist party and so on are aware that this has, you know, potential to to strengthen the labour movement, which has all sorts of ideas, as Emmett has said, about home rule and other things. So I think one factor in the violence in Belfast is that whatever the initial spark, people like Carson, Edward Carson and others, make very clear that they say labor politics and socialist politics and what they call Bolshevism is coming in under the cloak of Sinn Féin and that Sinn Féin are going to use this to divide us. So you've got to be on your guard against these infiltrators. And the term infiltrators is then used not just about Catholics, who are an obvious um, uh, sign of infiltration, um, but also then what are later called the rotten prods, which is usually trade union activists are socialists from Protestant backgrounds, or, or in the end, those who defend their Catholic workmates. Now, there's some discussion over the exact figure. I think Emmett says, Austin Morgan says 1,800 or something, of the expellees are, are rotten prods, and I think Emmett has that fear too. Some people in Belfast have suggested to me that they think it would be far lower, but that could be their own bias, if you know what I mean. But certainly a lot of Protestants are thrown out in the wave of workplace expulsions, as well, and and this is to—it's not only to to, on the one hand, you know, um, uh, make unionism feel good by defeating the the external nationalist threat, but also then weaken. I mean, the, the ITUC, when it talks a year later, says you know, wage rates are being cut, and employers are taking advantage of the fact that you know lots of these trade unionists are being thrown out some of the people throwing them out aren't members of unions either which is the other interesting factor mm. about, about
0: this one thing i find curious about these um, shipyard expulsions is that like, they happen kind of you know maybe every 10 years 20 years whatever but then there's always new people to be expelled the next time round right so it seems to suggest that that these are periods of exceptional you know violence right that that the rest of the time people tend to drift back to work am i right on that
3: and Corrected me correctly. Uh, about well, the point of well, making like, yeah, I it that,
0: that, that it's, it's...
3: That these happened in the 1880s as well and they happened yeah. on other occasions. But in 1912, some of the employers take a hard line and say, you know, we want these workers back. We can't run a business hmm. if you are expelling, you know, a quarter of our workforce every so often. I mean, ma- managers are there to manage, you know, not, not you lot. So in 1912, some... I think it's the big yard, Harland and Wolfe, as opposed to the wee yard, which is Workman-Clark. Workman-Clark is, is run by a very extreme unionist and I think he he applauds the expulsion of the workers. But Harland and Wolf take a different view at the time. By 1920, the unionist elite are very clearly applauding this. I mean, in the House of Commons, Edward Carson says something. The finest men I know are the men of the yards. And he's talking in the context of the fact that they're becoming the shock troops or some of them mm. for, you know, kind of unionist reaction. So I think there are cycles and periods in which people get work. But the other factor, of course, is is the war. You know, the yards had boomed, industry had boomed, but there's a slump. You know, people are terrified. Firstly, you've got all the ex-servicemen coming back, some of whom expect jobs, but are being told that the Catholics have taken those jobs or are going to take them. The Catholics who are disloyal, even though lots of Catholics are ex-servicemen. Another feature of the violence is that Catholics who served in the First World War are among those being expelled, both from their homes and and workplaces. But also then the argument is that, you know, things are going to go bad again. We've got to hold on to our jobs. We've got to stop, you know, keeping the Catholics out is one way to try and ensure that we at least hold on to our jobs. So there's an economic context to the the ferocity, I
0: think, of this as well, as well as the political and the national one. Now, Emmett, in response to this situation, uh, meanwhile, uh, the the new provisional government, Dublin, uh, organises the Belfast boycott. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, basically throws fuel on the fire, does it not?
1: Yeah, I mean, j- just in relation to the expulsions, they, they coincide with times of political crisis. So you have them during the first home rule crisis, second home rule crisis, third home rule crisis. The uh, 1920, then, the threat of uh, the well, kind of crisis over partition. Uh, also, 1935... Um, when you've got sort of attacks on uh, orange marches and so on, 1912 is the first time that Protestant workers are expelled as well as Catholic workers, and that's because the labour movement is now seen, the official labour movement is now seen to be anti-partition. But one of the responses to the 1920 expulsions uh, is the the Belfast boycott, yeah, and um, it it was ill judged because I mean there was this kind of myth in the south that we could, as they put it, scuttle Carsonia, we could destroy the Northern state by, by you know, cutting off trade to the north. In reality, the north didn't trade so much with the south. They, their main trading partner was Britain and the empire. So the boycott in the south didn't have the kind of big impact that they expected it would have. It also inflamed sectarian tensions. It uh, you know, antagonised Protestants. It became a cover for attacks on some Protestant businesses in the, in the south, including here in Galway. So uh, generally it, it, was, it was mismanaged and it was the first of a whole kind of series of sort of bungled nationalist responses to, to the problem of partition, which indeed you could argue you know, go on to the present day.
0: Mm. And I mean, it, it, it's, uh, it also maybe exposed the weakness of the, the, the southern state.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, there, in there was... Yeah, in, in reality there was, there was not a lot that they, they, they could do about it. Um, I mean, the, the best that they could probably have done was to get a better deal... On, uh, on, on, you know, where on, on where you drew the line. But yeah. I mean, but by that stage, I mean, they weren't in a position to actually stop partition. So Can just somebody, say that uh,
2: Constance Markievicz and Ernest Blythe for once in the cabinet agreed that partition, uh, that the, the boycott would boycott would would, would cement partition and were, were against it, mm-hmm. um, I think it's interesting.
0: So we want to come in there with a question. Use, you, you, use the mic uh, um, just, to, just to let you know that this has all been recorded, so keep it clean. Yes. Uh, it will be eventually be a, a podcast on our website.
2: I, so I was hoping somebody else would going before me, but um, it's just a, a question on syndicalism. And I know um, Emmett's written a book about um, syndicalism, but, and the question is basically, would it, did syndicalism prevent a political party being formed in Ireland that uh, would have transcended sectarianism? and won over Protestant workers as well as Catholic workers to the idea of a workers' republic. Would that have been... Was there a possibility, if it hadn't been for syndicalism, that there would have been a greater chance
3: of
1: that happening? Well, I I wouldn't say it prevented it, but it it did become an excuse. I mean, the the, the problem was that in 1918, when you did have a chance for Labour to to make an impact politically, um, it it had gone through a generation of depoliticisation since the 1880s, certainly 1890s, because the problem in Ireland was that if you didn't get involved with the national question, you didn't get involved with politics. So that standing back from the national question led to a whole generation of depoliticization of the labor movement. So when the opportunity came for getting involved in politics in 1918, there really weren't the the, the trained caterers, There there wasn't the organization. Now, it's true that syndicalism did provide a kind of an alibi for that, you know, because the, the, the theory was, well, it doesn't matter because politics, as Connolly said, is just the echo of the battle. And if, as long as we're strong industrially, we can turn that industrial power into political power any time we want. And Labour was kind of doubly unfortunate in that the kind of one sort of political element, the political officer of Congress was uh, Tom Johnson, and he really wasn't up to the job. He was, he was a very good secretary. He was very good at that. But he wasn't up to being a leader. You know, the, the kind of pressure of being in a poor position didn't suit him at all. So he was inclined to kind of make excuses for postponing action. And he was really the wrong man to be, to be the political officer of Congress. Jump in there.
4: Um, I'd, I'd just like to pick up on the point that was made um, or that was uh, touched on that... Before partition, the North was a place apart, um, and although there there is evidence that some, you know, uh, um, articulated that view, um, I think even if you go to even the likes of Carson, who certainly wasn't a Republican, who when he was shafted by uh, Lloyd George, you know, acknowledged that they were on the wrong side it it sounds very familiar to what's happened uh, recently well, they never but learn, you know <laughs> this 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 notion that it was a place apart i th- i think is just um, you know it, it it's the the false consciousness really of the imperialists imposing that kind of view on the, um, the northern workers that they were in some way as as British as Finchley, and yet, you know, they go over to Finchley, and they would have been Paddies as well.
0: Brian, you want to respond to that?
3: That's true, but it wasn't just. I mean, Republicans recognised this as well, even if it made them very uncomfortable at times. I mean, De Valera gives a speech in New York in 1919 to the Labour movement, and he talks about. I'm not specifically a Labour leader, but as the leader of the Irish nation, I can speak for Irish Labour. And then he says, except for that section in Belfast, which is British. So De Valera is saying that there's a section of the Irish Labour movement that, that he believes is British. But I mean, m- more astoundingly, Father Michael O'Flanagan, who becomes vice president of Sinn Féin, as the outstanding Sinn Féin campaigner in 1918, because he's, he's not in jail, essentially, but he writes in 1916 that, you know, geography has worked hard to make one nation out of Ireland. History has worked against it. The island of Ireland and the national unit of Ireland simply don't, do not co- coincide. In the last analysis, the test of separate nationality is the wish of the people. If you want to know a man's nationality, there are many tests, but the one, one test is final, ask him. And he says, after 300 years, England has begun to despair of being able to compel us to love her by force. And so we are anxious to start where England left off and we are going to compel Antrim and Down to love us by force. Now, this is a Republican... And he's saying that really you know these they are different and if they think they're british you know well what what do we do now he's you know uh doesn't really tend to stress this over the next few years but it is a a recognition that it isn't just one or two people who think there's a difference there are people who think politically there is a difference and what do we do about it now for some of them it means yeah there's two different nations but um, the differences can be exaggerated and there's a difference between tyrone and, and, and Belfast. And there's a difference between Newry and, and Derry, so it's not just, you know, mm. the mm. North. But, I mean, um, um, there is a recognition at the time that, that there is something different there. And the simple thing is that there's at least a million people there who don't want to be part of an independent Irish state, whatever about, and not even a, a self-governing Irish state. And, uh, yeah.
5: um, just to go back to the uh, 19th oh. century oh. Um, the relationship between the early labour movement and nationalism um, around the process of de and the need for tariff protection, yeah? And that was very much a southern urban phenomenon, surely, yeah? Um, so given the divergent um, patterns of economic development on the island, yeah, given the fact that Southern Ireland experienced deindustrialization, right? While the North experienced industrialization and became part of that industrial imperial metropolis, yeah. Um, how could there be anything other than partition, yeah? I mean, shipyard workers aren't going to support tariff protection, surely, mm-hmm. when they're selling the, those ships into um, the imperial market.
0: Anyone respond to that? Mm-hmm. I just, I think you'll go for Peter first in the corner, then we'll, yeah. Do you want to get anyone, to come back to that one? Well, uh, yeah, you, you're right in
1: that. It was, it, it was very much a kind of Southern <coughs> phenomenon and especially expressed by the, um, yeah, by the, the urban crafts, uh, especially the, the Dublin trades um, and the, the, the North, you know, developed uh, d- differently. I mean, um, whether it meant partition was inevitable, I don't know. I mean, the uh, yes. I mean, th- there were differences b- between the, the, the north and south. And as early as the eighteen fifties, people are talking about you know, Sharman Crawford's tenant right movement is the League of North and South, which implicitly kind of recognises that there are there are differences there. Um, but from from a Labour point of view, partition was not acceptable b- because it would mean a sectarian state in the north. In the north, so that 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 was their argument against it. They, they did accept that people in the North, some people in the North did, did want a separate state. Yeah, sure.
0: Peter, jump in the quick. Uh,
3: just a thought rather than a question. It would
1: seem to me that there are
3: some parallels here between Ireland and the, the labor movement and the Austro-Hungarian Empire towards the end of the First World War, where it's a long time since I read about this stuff, but I mean, that the Polish and the, the, the Bohemian Czech parts would have split along linguistic and ethnographic lines and, you know, large pre-war social democratic parties would have split into the component parts. And we're kind of having the same discussion but in, in, in a different framework here. And maybe that's, that's you know, worthy of some inter- international comparison. Obviously, there are linguistic barriers, but it's worth
6: looking
0: at. Thanks. Just, just in front of you there, just put your hand up over yeah. John, just, yeah. How much time, seconds, yeah, yeah. Sorry. How much time have we
6: left right, yeah. Yeah. Um, How much time I just want a to time yeah. thoughts on uh, why then workers were difficult to organise, you know, beyond the uh, personalities of Conley and, and I'm going to ask Margaret particularly, um, but also um, in communal disputes where people are expelled from communities and things are not unfamiliar but I'd just like to know, I, I ask this quite often uh, at various <laughs> events like this, uh, do we know of uh, lots of other kind of experiences where workers were just expelled from their jobs from other countries or other experiences? But I'd like to, Margaret, maybe to just talk about the, the difficulties that
2: of organising in, in the
6: industry, which you mentioned.
2: You probably know as much as I do, Therese, but when you think of the, the length of time that they worked... Um, for a start, and you think of women who would have had family responsibilities, and then you think that so many of them lived in um, in, in houses that were tied up with um, um, with the ownership of the mills, that they would have felt that you know their whole livelihoods and their families' future were tied up with whether or not they defied um the owner of the mills so i think it was very difficult and it seems that the women that connolly mainly worked with were younger women it wouldn't have been the older women with families um so that's one thing and talking we had a history workshop in belfast a few months ago and may blood was on the panel and somebody who had worked in the mills um you know, in the last few decades, things didn't seem to be significantly different in terms of conditions of employment and the way women um, supported each other against a very male kind of background. Um, And she talked about, you know, the the way women um, protected each other, um, you know, that they were still working in mills, and she's talking about, you know, the 1960s, when they're not given time off, for example, for maternity leave, and women are um, uh, helping to secret the babies in to be fed and, and bringing them back behind the bosses' backs. So if that's happening, you know, in, in the 1960s, when you think about, you know, the 1910s or 20s. I can see how difficult it must have been for women to have had that kind of confidence. And when they did go out on strike for that short time <laughs> under Connolly in 1911, I mean, it was poverty that brought them back because the union was too poor to um, pay adequate strike pay. And, and so they had to, had to return to work. Just this gentleman here, A uh,
7: question for Emmet, and um, this is a genuine question. Given your assessment of Tom Johnson, would you like to nominate anyone who would have been up to the job at the time? (laughs)
0: That's a good question, Andrew.
1: Yeah, okay. Um, um, Well, I I mean, I've I've been been critical of Johnson. I've been been criticized for for being too critical of Johnson. My, My point is that he was a good secretary but he, he was a bad leader and, uh, you know, I, I think that, that proved to be the point, the case in the, particularly when he sort of was pushed to the position of leading the Labour Party. But I mean, there were other possibilities, such as Cahal O'Shannon was one who I think, Cahal O'Shannon, who would have, I think, made a good sort of political officer uh, for Congress. You know, w- what you wanted was somebody who, who was willing to engage in confrontation. Johnson hated confrontation. And, you know, that, that was, was... I mean, Louis Bennett sort of made that point during the split, when Congress split in 1945 and she said to him, look, we need somebody like yourself. Somebody, she actually said, somebody who's a trimmer, somebody who's a mediator, mm-hmm. uh, somebody who can bring the two sides together, you know. So, uh,
0: confrontation wasn't as far to... You know. Brian, do you want to come... Just, sorry, Brian, you wanted to come in there? Well, I
3: wanted to come in on, on Therese's second...
0: Question. Okay, because you yeah, take
3: just very quickly. There's, a phenomenon, ex- there's yeah. a phenomenon. Obviously, there's specifics to what's happening in Belfast um, in 1920, but there's a post war phenomenon of slump, of fears, of displacement, of women, the movement of women into the workforce being resented and demands that women be thrown out of jobs. But in a, a more ferocious setting, race riots in Liverpool and Cardiff in 1919 over, again, the fear that black or Chinese sailors and so on had got jobs uh, in the the war that that were now going to be denied to to returning servicemen. In the United States, one factor behind the the vicious riots in Chicago and elsewhere, the movement of black workers from the South during the First World War, the fear again among whites that this is the beginning of their displacement, the return of ex-servicemen on both sides, returning African-American ex-servicemen who are confident and who stand up, to racism, returning white ex-servicemen who say the jobs have been taken, our homes are being taken. So there is an international phenomenon of reaction, essentially, where you do have people driven from workplaces, or in the American case, driven from neighbourhoods as well, if they abut um, neighbourhoods where they're seen as encroaching. Um, obviously, there are specifics to Belfast, but it's, it's not unique in, in that sense.
1: Yeah. Just, uh, just, just in relation to, to women and work, you have this debate among historians as to why women didn't join trade unions. Was because of opposition from the employers? Or was it a calculated decision on the part of women themselves that it just wasn't worth paying the money when they wouldn't get so much in return for, from the unions? But it's significant in the case of the dairy shirt factories, that, which were over 75%, 80% female labor. The unions tried hard to organize them. They had some limited success, not very much. But when they introduced um, a minimum wage in, in World War I, uh, under the trade boards act and in practice you, you really needed uh, to be in a union to make sure you got the minimum wage The women joined up in their thousands get
0: in, get in quick
3: yeah, um, Margaret mentioned um, how co-ops also played a, a part in giving, giving uh, I think the cooperative women's guild gave women a platform um, in 1912 the Belfast Cooperative Society celebrated Union Day so, you essentially had um, a place that was supposed to be shared, it was supposed to be a non sectarian place where Catholic members, shoppers, were, I guess, kind of cold house out, for, out of their own um, business that they would have owned. Yet, 12, within 12 months, you have the CWS from Manchester supplying um, very necessary supplies to striking workers in Dublin. And I just really want to get a sense from the panel what, how do you think that cooperatives? the co-op movement themselves were playing into um, the development of a working-class culture, the labour movement in the
0: north, because I'm um, I, I just interested in, 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 in to hear what you think about that. you want to take that one? The, co- the cooperative movement?
2: I only really know about Margaret McCubrey and the cooperative movement. I know that um, she became active and, 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 and got a, a paid position, um, I think, by about 19, 1915, and you know she was very anti-war and made very strong pacifist statements about the war, and when she was part of the, the co-op movement. And after the war, she's very—it seems to be very much um, on the basis of um, uh, looking at social welfare, children, health. Education and those kind of things, but that's all I know. And, I, and but what's interesting is that she was a contemporary of Winnie Carney. They knew each other. Um, when when Margaret Mcube tried to set up the franchise league, when when suffrage died in, in Belfast, Winnie Carney came to meetings there. Yet after that, they're, they're, Margaret Mcube doesn't seem to have been involved in anything to do with the national question in any form during the War of Independence or after. So whether that's been part of her being involved in the co-op movement and they didn't take on those bigger political issues, I don't know. I mean, she was initially from Scotland and settled, but she doesn't seem to have been um, at all sympathetic to to what was going on. Um, But I don't know the wider and who else was involved or... What, it, what issues they took up.
0: Now, we've, we've talked about the difficulties faced by Labour uh, in, in the, the, the partitioned, you know, North-East, but it caused equal problems in the Labour Party in the South. You've already referred to it, uh, Emmett, yeah. the, the split that took place in the 1940s uh, with the emergence of, you know, national Labour. And, I mean, I, I could go on Then 1970s, and the, the advent of Conor Cruz O'Brien as the Labour Party's Northern Ireland spokesperson mm. caused ructions as well. So it seems to be an ongoing uh, problem in the Labour movement, North and South.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, you know, partition kind of, the, the actuality of partition kind of changed everything. Uh, once it was in place, um, it, it became a new reality that, that, that people were more or less f- forced to accept. And uh, you had the, the NILP then been formed in 1924, and uh, they adopted what they call a non-committal position on the, on the constitutional question uh, th- their argument was that
0: um, a bit like Labour and Brexit, then. Yeah, Brexit, that
1: yeah. the the the, uh, <laughs> the the constitutional question was a non-essential issue, that that what they should concentrate on was bread and butter issues. In fact, of course, it was the issue that, that obsessed everybody, but they couldn't take a stand on it. They would have been better off if they'd adopted something like like what the Alliance Party has done, which is to adopt uh, you know a, a kind of a a position on it that everybody should accept instead of allowing everybody in the uh, NILP to take their own position, which meant that you had, a, you had three or four different positions within the NILP until 1949 when they came down off the fence and they came out in, in favour of the union. And then the Labour Party in the south seems to me has generally kind of tailed the prevailing you know, consensus on the national question in the north. So um, you know, they're, they're generally sort of following on behind of fall. And then, they, you know, in reaction to the North, they, they, they kind of turn anti-nationalist in the 1970s. But then they, under Dick Spring, they kind of accept the uh, you know, the anglo irish agreement and the Belfast agreement. So Labour's always had problems in trying to develop an independent position on the Northern question.
0: But Dick, but, um, Dick Spring, Spring's father, Dan Spring...
1: He would have been strong Republican,
0: he, he, yeah. he was a strong Republican, he That was a Republican vote yeah. in
1: Kerry. He was, yeah. But that that was, a, that was another generation, you know. Mm. Dick, Dick was, uh, he, he, was uh, he was a very professional person and he was a very astute kind of leader of the Labour Party. My main criticism of Dick Spring is that he turned the Labour Party into a liberal party, that he abandoned, you know, the traditional old labour economic and social values and, and replaced them with, ga- you know... Ga- I
0: was going to say gas and socialist labour. Yeah,
1: li- liberal middle-class values, yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, I'm just looking at the time here, guys. Anybody else want to come in from, from the audience? I'm, I'm sure there's a few more questions or comments there. Yeah, just, just take the mic there, this just, just gentleman here first, and then I'll go over to you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for a really interesting panel. Um, I was just wondering if any of the panellists would like to comment on how they would situate um, nationalist intellectuals like Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins and Patrick Pearce in this discussion. Uh, and perhaps what their relation to uh, socialist thinkers was during the revolutionary period. Um, Ryan?
3: Yeah, I mean, there, there's what's interesting about Sinn Féin nationally during that period is you've got a, a, a guy called, uh, I think, de Blackham, who, who produces a couple of books, What Sinn Féin Stands for, and other things. And he, basically, they're very enthusiastic about the revolutions in Europe, often very enthusiastic about the Bolsheviks, um, say, Ireland, you know, the empires are breaking up. A new world is, 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 is coming into being. Um, De Blackham talks about how in Ireland you've got this wave of unionisation, and that's, that's a good thing, but you don't need class struggle. The Irish new Irish Republic will be just. It'll be a just social order. There'll be an end to exploitation. Collins, to an extent, talks about that too. But you don't need class struggle. So they're not socialists, and they tend to be wary of... Um, now, there are different tendencies within the movement, some very close to labour and and some hostile, but they're aware of the important... I suppose what they're aware of is what we should be aware of, the fact that labour are a factor, that while this is going on in Belfast, across the rest of the country, the transport union is becoming a mass phenomenon, 120,000 members, 60,000 of them farm labourers. You know, Terry and other people spoke about that this morning, that labour can't be ignored, that there are workplace takeovers, that there are general strikes, that the Republican movement needs the support or at least the ambivalence of Labour in most of the country and it becomes very problematic once you get to Belfast. But a lot of the Republican social thinking, and there's differences too, I mean Griffith, again in 1913, very hostile to Larkinism, but others would have argued that Griffith was very pro-trade union, he'd been a trade union member himself in the print trade. And of course there's a big difference between the skilled men and the unskilled men. And Griffith would have been one of that layer of separatists who fears British socialism and British syndicalism and its ability to disrupt nationalist unity. You see that in the Catholic Bulletin, edited by J.J. O'Kelly, who becomes Sinn Féin TD and, and president of the Gaelic League. He, in 1913, writes, you know, of the pride of our forefathers who died at the roadside rather than accept English bread during the famine, or Protestant bread. But now we see the shame of them queuing at the docks in Dublin. this socialist charity and that's how they're going to poison us with their you know internationalism and so on so those ideas all exist but there's also a pragmatism the fact that there's a munitions strike or munitions boycott the fact that there are general strikes to free republican prisoners the republican movement are very happy with that and they want to keep labor on side as i say de valera addresses the trade union congress in 1921 and he says you know labor deserve the best that ireland can give them you've put aside your special interests for two years you know you know in order to aid us so there's you know that says a lot, but it also says a lot about the fact that Labour did put aside their special but, interests. But
2: also, you know, think of Sean Van Vocht when, when um, uh, Alice Milligan and Nessa Carpre print Connolly's first writings and they make it as an editorial thing. They say, you know, it's very interesting that we have him. We don't necessarily agree with them. So you can see there that, you know, there's a nationalist view and there's a socialist view. They're not the same. Um... Hannah Shee Skeffington says of Michael Collins you know, that his vision of the future is really the, you know, similar to a, a kind of an English you know, uh, political entity because he knew no other, is how she puts it. You know, he didn't have a, a political vision that was different. Um, and, 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 and so there, there are those kind of discussions that are happening and people do see the difference. And, um, and I think Winifred Carney, Helga Walkenston... Great work in digging out various things about Winifred Carney, who always remains, you know, a Connolly socialist, and talks uh, and replies to de when when he's talking about the future by saying that. If Connolly had, had lived, we wouldn't have had the treaty that exists because he would have made sure, basically, she feels, that we would have had something different, that we would have had something much more radical there. So there were people active who still had a kind of a, a socialist vision.
0: Okay. Somebody, there, somebody there want to come in? Yeah,
2: I just, if I'm allowed a heckle. Uh, heckle away, John. Sure.
1: Uh, De has come up, up quite a bit today. But uh, he was a trade unionist, a founder of the ASTI, and an activist in the ASTI. So, anya, yeah, just
2: <laughs> yeah.
7: Just reverting back to a point was made earlier, um, and and your thoughts on it. It's always struck me as paradoxical that the within in an Irish context, the the working class that shows the strongest class consciousness is the Protestant working class. And it it shows that in a form of very aggressive Protestantism, not just in Belfast, but also in Dublin, and that their enemy is very often middle-class Protestants who they feel are not being Protestant enough. And that you get a very strong class consciousness combined with an extremely aggressive sectarianism within the working class. And does that ever strike you as a very interesting paradox? Discuss... (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a
1: well, you, you do in some particular context, notably in the context of loyalism which, uh, I mean, right from you know the days of Tom Sloan and so on back in the 1904, 1905 loyalism kind of starts off with being more uh, sectarian than mainstream unionism and then they say well, what, what are we fighting about here? Um, you know um, maybe we, we should start thinking about class issues. And they then kind of developed this antagonism to what they call the Four-Code Brigade. So you get that in the 1900s. You get it, you get it again in the, in the 1990s, uh, you know, with David Irvine and so forth, you know. So it is a kind of recurring theme in, in loyalism, yeah.
0: Now, do you want to just take the mic back and just follow up there? Yeah, just yeah, take the mic. We can't
7: hear you otherwise. Yeah, just if you want to take it back and follow up. Sorry, just the, the, but, but the point that uh, it, th- this is an expression of a very strong class consciousness, and that's something that, from a Labour point of view, we will be seen as a very good thing, that there is, is a very strong class consciousness, and yet it expresses itself in, in this ferocious uh, sectarianism, which is a bad thing. Mm. You know, and that paradox has always struck me as very interesting. Yeah. Um, and and your, your, your thoughts on it would be...
3: It's, it's a self-defeating class consciousness because it, it thinks that by, you know, you, you criticise the unionist mainstream or the leadership. Paisley in the 1960s, for example, a big part of his initial appeal is that, you know, firstly, he's got an ordinary accent. All the unionist leadership are all landowners and all the rest of it. These guys who are going to sell us out like O'Neill are all there with their plummy accents and all the rest of it. But ultimately, Paisley defends the company vote that denies votes working-class Protestants as well, because the logic of getting rid of that is that Catholics will have the votes. I mean, Faulkner, Brian Faulkner, for example, ad- addresses the Shankill Unionist Association in the late 50s, and one of the delegates says to him, you know, Mr Faulkner, isn't it a disgrace that that we haven't brought our laws into line with Britain, and we still have lots of people here in the Shankill who don't have votes in local elections because they're not homeowners? And Faulkner says, yes, it is a disgrace, as you know, and I, I would like to do something about it, but if we did that, we'd lose Fermanagh, we'd lose Tyrone, we'd lose Derry City. So the choice is, except you as a working class Protestant can feel like you're better, but if you actually get in line with the rest of the UK, you allow the Nationalists you know, to step in and a little destroy Ulster. And in 1920, the Loyalists who drove the rotten prods from the shipyards were driving out their best shop stewards. So in 1921, 22, those lads' wages were cut, so it's not you know, class consciousness that wins you something in the end, it's self-defeating. It's actually doing, if I can lapse into rhetoric, the boss's
0: work. Hmm.
4: You know? I, yep. I, I wouldn't describe it at all as class consciousness. I, I think it's false consciousness. Because if you look at, at um, the, you know, their, one of the their figureheads is royalty. It, it's, it's all part of that, that kind of identity. It's very unusual to see um, a loyalist working class socialist who will, you know, say, oh, we need to get rid of the monarchy. Um, so t- for me, you know, as, as an atheist, as a northern republican socialist feminist, Marxist, whatever you know definition you want to put on me, it I don't see it as class consciousness. I see it as false consciousness. The way it's been depicted, um, you know, there isn't that, you know, um, fraternity. There, you know, there is no kind of connection that way. And um, for me, you know, that notion of that they're the most class conscious, it, it, it's a narrative I don't, uh, you know, agree with, to be honest.
0: Unfortunately, if you look at the world today, there's, there's a lot of it about. I mean, you can ask the same question, why do people vote for Donald Trump? You know, why do people support the, the National Fund? In, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's one of the problems in the world today. Listen, I'm looking at the time here, guys. I'm going to have a wrap-up here. Uh, I just want to go to Emmett. This is a, a question we, we, in, in the points we exchanged before this. So this is your question now, right, to yourself. Why, why has Labour usually seen nationalism as a problem rather than an opportunity since 1916?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, think, I think it is related to, um, you know, simple conservatism that uh, to, to embrace... Um, The national question fully involves, you know, commitment to to revolutionary change to to some degree or other. And a lot of people are very nervous about that. I mean, you know, for the past um, six or seven months, the government has been considering extending the vote in presidential elections to people outside the state. There's been a hugely negative response to that. Even though the president doesn't have a lot of power, people are very nervous about the idea of, you know, you know um, emigres but particularly people from the north getting the vote and maybe encouraging the idea of a united ireland and all the changes that might bring so to me it it does have a lot to do with with conservatism i think it's also a legacy of the anglicization of the labor movement in in the 19th century
0: okay i'm going to wrap up there uh, i'd like to thank uh, our speakers uh, emma o'connor uh, brian hanley and margaret ward I'd like to thank you to the audience, uh, in particular those people who participated in the discussion and our uh, marvellous hosts here in the, uh, the mechanics. Um, I haven't had a chance to get a drink yet, so I, I'm going to avail of the facilities shortly. Uh, just to let you know that uh, the next History, History Ireland Hedge School is tomorrow. I feel, like, I feel like a show band here. I'm going to jump in a <laughs> minibus uh, in, a, in an hour or so. Uh, the next Hedge School is at the Allingham Festival in Ballyshannon. And the topic is Mobilize the Poets, Art and Culture in the Irish Revolution. So it'd be nice to see some of you there or right, back here again next time. Thank you very much.